Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today I'll be talking with Asa Stanley, who's an author and investigative journalist with Electronic Intifada. Today we'll be talking about the effects on our media, the impact of the war on Gaza on our political system, on the future elections, as well as on the impact on young people and how they're thinking and asking real questions. Enjoy! There is no doubt that the the war in in Gaza has has impacted you know every single element that you can think of, but probably and arguably none more than the media and the media narrative. And this has been a, a place where there has been a struggle of sorts um, for the the truth, for a, a proper analysis of what's going on. And uh, and we've seen something which I consider quite concerning from the viewpoint of someone whom for years, decades probably even, has been uh, involved in training on media and media narratives and how to create a narrative and how to capture a news report and how to analyze and all these things pertaining to the media. And I have to say that something like 25 years ago, I wouldn't flinch when uh, mentioning that Britain's media, particularly the BBC, um, was, you know, sort of a symbol that represented something akin to professionalism, to integrity, to seeking the truth, to verifying news before broadcasting them. But one of the things that has become absolutely clear, I mean, it's it's been going downhill for a while, but but particularly after the 7th of October, the, the overall media performance has been nothing if not shambolic. Yeah. And it's been utterly unprofessional. It's been sometimes, you know, on the verge of farcical even. And, um, and this surely, I mean, it represents probably two things. Firstly, the state of global media, not only British media, but global media, but also secondly, that the media war, if if I'm allowed to use that expression, has been won by the Palestinians. Um, would, would I be would I be wrong in assuming this? No, you're not wrong at all. I mean, I I think I, there's a lot of issues here. I mean, I, I think one of them is just the general decay of institutions in the West, generally speaking. Um, the general, uh, I mean, Britain, especially a lot of institutions are generally crumbling and you, uh, you can't exclude the BBC from that. But I think, uh, and, you know, the BBC especially, but also the entire edifice of Western media has always had a very strong propaganda element to it. Like it's always had a very strong um, support for its own government, right? It's always had, It's always been very partisan in that way while trying to appear... Um, as if it was fair and balanced and and and, and neutral and and have this um, this kind of uh, veneer of professionalism, but there is you're, you're right. There is definitely a sense that this process, a process of um, deprofessionalization, almost within Western media, I would say has really accelerated a lot in recent years and especially since um, 7th of October last year because you you can see things like, I, I mean, I've talked to family members who just, you know, within my own family who 
when I'm putting on Al Jazeera, for example, the contrast between Al Jazeera's coverage of Gaza, the world, the, uh, the, the, the reality that's portrayed on Al Jazeera, or because uh, uh, you know that's easier to watch because it's on Freeview, um, and and what's on the BBC is just it's a completely different world. You know, it, it just the the, B, the overall coverage on the BBC, um, even on Channel Four News and ITV news bulletins, um, it's a very different uh, picture that they're painting of what's happening in Gaza. They don't show the reality so much um even when there's exceptions like um you know a few weeks ago there was this um bulletin of, uh, on itv which was which was quite good and it showed you know i mean it was good in terms of the the journalism that was doing and it showed um palestinian civilians who were waving white flags and still being shot um uh, deliberately by the israelis um and so that was quite good journalism you know but even that was sort of Framed as if it was some sort of uniquely um, abnormal, yeah, abnormal. And it was the exception to the rule, exactly. And but the, I mean, the, what you say is interesting because I remember a time when the BBC, specifically the BBC, because of the nature of how the BBC was founded, how it was funded, and continues to be funded, so it's sort of unique amongst you know its its peers of of media platforms around the world. Um, but I remember when a news report is a news report, you, you know, you say this has happened and it's happened at this time in this place. And these are the fatalities or casualties. These were the parties that were involved. This is what the authorities have said. And then you leave it to the analysts or to the, you know, people who you brought as guests to portray their take from their, you know, respective political or ideological point of views. But now you have the actual framing of the news itself in accordance with a specific political and ideological. So it's as though the BBC has become party to the news rather than a mere portrayer or purveyor of, of the news. And that is, that is troubling. Yeah, I, I think it, it is used to push this ideological line, really, which in the case of Israel is that um, Israel is basically the Israeli propaganda narrative and the, the, the Western narrative about, you know, that the, the image they try and portray essentially is that, well, for example, with the US, that the, 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 the American president, well, he's not happy with the war that's happening in Gaza and he is trying to sort of rein back the Israelis a bit and there's not much he can do about it. And just missing out the most obvious elephant in the room, which is that, you know, f nearly 4 billion in military aid that goes to Israel every year from, from the United States, uh, in terms of support from Britain and the rest of Europe, um, you know, absolute, uh, as well as uh, military uh, assistance, as well as arms sales, you know, absolute political and, and military support. Uh, political and uh, diplomatic support and all kinds all kinds of different support for Israel in all kinds of ways that goes to Israel from Britain from from British government from the British opposition um those the, those pressure point those potential leverage points um are completely missed out you know they they're generally not portrayed and just the obvious question is rarely asked about well okay if you really wanted to 
if you really wanted to stop what's happening in Gaza, you could actually do something about it. You could actually stop weapons going, for example, and instead of this sort of framing a narrative of, oh, well, Israel has the right to defend itself, which is the Israeli propaganda narrative, because Israel, the, the fact is that Israel isn't defending itself. Israel's never been defending itself. And um, really, in a way, the concept of Israeli self-defense is is doesn't exist like it's a complete contradiction in terms because the whole existence of israel is predicated on um the destruction of the palestinians and the the literal wiping of palestine off the map um, and the expulsion of the palestinians you know we all know that the expulsion of the palestinians began with the the foundation of israel or even before then really it has its roots before then going back really 135 years so these, you know, there's obviously there's limits to the historical context that you can get into within a short news bulletin, but um, the the basic facts of that of the fact that, for example, the the two point three million people in Gaza, eighty percent of them are refugees who were um, expelled and their descendants in nineteen forty since nineteen forty eight. So you know that these basic facts are. are often left out and there was you're right like there was a sense more in the past where there was a sense of kind of uh, professionalism in the past in western media that has has really gone now in a, you know in a lot of ways i mean you you see for example um you know only uh, uh, i forget now when exactly it was was it november or december when uh, john pilger passed away um you know the really a brilliant journalist with a you know an absolutely brilliant career who exposed the truth in a lot of ways and he still but in his lifetime he had access to mainstream media with what would be considered to be dissenting narratives in a lot of ways but he still was able to get some really brilliant films and documentaries onto ITV later on they sort of pushed it more towards the late night slots and things like that but he was able to get access to the mainstream in a way that, um, you know, for want of a better phrase, dissenting journalists wouldn't be able to now. And by the end of his career, he was marginalized and he wasn't able to access in the same way that um, he was um, in the past. Do you see people seeing through that? Do you see more and more people um, losing trust and confidence in yeah. the likes of the BBC as well as CNN and the rest? Um, of 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 what we term and what we call mainstream media, I'm not entirely sure whether that in in the world of you know TikTok and social media and the such and people getting their news feed from from alternative media yeah. news media, why it is that we still call it mainstream media. But still, do you see more and more people seeing through the you know the lies, the fabrications, the analysis that is bipart bipartisan? Yeah, I mean, do you see that? Yeah, I think so, because there is a sense in which, I mean, I, I do think uh, the internet plays a role in this. I mean, look, the internet's not a panacea because obviously anyone can put anything on the internet to a large, to, to a large degree. Um, you know, there are there is increasing restrictions and censorship on the internet, but to a large degree, there is good things and bad things on the internet, right? So there's correct information, there's raw information, which is just information that's out there without any particular context and there's also disinformation on there so there's you have to kind of sift through everything um 
so it's not a panacea, but there is a sense in which that the a lot of the raw facts of what is happening in Gaza, what is happening to the Palestinians, is being put out there online, and people, especially younger people, are seeing it on their social media feeds, even if it's not, you know, in the full context and there's not a full journalistic explanation necessarily they're seeing things just there as raw data um which are not then portrayed within the corporate media within the so-called mainstream media and i think you're right like it is a question of should we really call it mainstream anymore when trust in it has been eroding for many many years and there is a good reason for that the example of gaza is a good one because of this because it's you know people are seeing this these horrible videos coming out of gaza and then you go turn to um the bbc if people turn to the bbc itv or even channel 4 news sky and so forth and they're not seeing these things then it's it's just another it's going to be a question of well why aren't they showing these things or even from the other side they're not showing even the Israeli videos that are coming out of Gaza. Um, these, you know, there's, there's, it's only, re it was only this month that the the New York Times, for example, did a feature, did a story about all these horrendous um, Israeli videos that are coming. Are uh, you know, the Israeli soldiers have been posting on TikTok of um, boasting of how all the war crimes they're doing. You know, the looting. Um, shooting people dead, shooting children dead, shooting, you know, demolishing buildings, controlled demolitions of, of civilian buildings, civilian infrastructure, normal people's homes, you know, uh, rifling through women's underwear drawers, um, uh, uh, just war crimes on camera that they're, they're filming themselves and then boasting about it and posting to TikTok or wherever they're posting it to these Israeli soldiers. And this is then sort of being ignored um, by a lot of the mainstream media. And, you know, as I said, you know, we, we've seen the New York Times has only just done something about this. And I, I, even though this has been happening all along, I just, I just saw a new story today about um, is, uh, Israeli soldiers. Um, it, was, it was in Israeli media, actually, an Israeli website, um, talking to Israeli soldiers who said that looting, for example, has just been, has become completely commonplace, completely normalized. Um, and they're just stealing from Palestinians' homes. There was also an Israeli uh, newspaper, Haaretz, that um, I think it was last week, they um, published a feature, a, a feature story with uh, lavish photos and it was about cooking. It was it was a cooking feature about how Israeli soldiers were having to improvise and cook with food and ingredients that they found in Palestinians' homes. So you know, it's it, it, and it, this was portrayed not as a crime. It was just portrayed as oh well, this is just something they have to do because they so have it's to. Eat. Daytime TV. Yeah, it was it was it was that sort of level. It was really 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 disgusting stuff. And um, this is the kind of thing that's normalized in Israeli media. And so you know. People are, and, and that story in particular wasn't published in English, even though Haaretz does translate most of its articles into English. That one was only in Hebrew. But people then, um, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if they use machine translation or this person uh, understood Hebrew. You know, a lot of Palestinians understand Hebrew as well. Um, they posted on, just posted on Twitter, on X, as it's now called, 
and just saying like look this is this this is the story here this is what they've been this is what the israeli media is normalizing so you, we're seeing this stuff on our social media feeds that's not being reflected in the mainstream in the so-called mainstream media and so that is another thing that leads to an erosion of trust with these corporate media organizations because you know if 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 I, I mean, obviously I'm a journalist, but if if I as a normal person can see this as just a member of the public, can see this stuff on my social media feeds, well then, you know, it doesn't take much of a leap to think, well, what's stopping a journalist collecting this stuff and reporting on it? And why aren't they reporting I mean, they it and exposing to, there it? There used to be times when journalists, real, you know, especially young journalists, you know, straight out of, I, I don't know, either media college or journalist school or journalism school or the such where you know the story was 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 something that they pursued with such vigor you know sometimes to the to the you know to the annoyance of everyone else but it seems today that ready-made stories which are which are out there which are being produced by young Gazans whose, whose homes have been totally demolished and their families obliterated. And they're giving them the news, they're showing them around, they're telling the stories and the such. And those are such compelling stories. We talk about, I mean, when I was much, much younger, I mean, there was something called the human dimension, you know, always go, you know, with the human dimension. There is nothing more human, you know, than, than what's happening today. Yet there seems to be either a lack of will <clears throat> or there, need, there, there, there seems to be some designed or orchestrated um, attempt to quell those, those stories and to, to basically prevent them from, from going out there. Now, I, I, you know, the, you know this, but the importance of the media that is available to everyone is that it is one of the main pillars of why democracy works or is supposed to work. I mean, essentially, this is this goes back to since Aristotle, that the question about democracy is that how can you equate between a vote for someone who's a peasant who doesn't know how to read or write and doesn't know much about beyond, you know, his herd of sheep or cows or the such, and the vote of someone who's been in politics, who's been in government for years, probably even decades. How do those two equate? It doesn't make sense. However, one of the means by which those become almost equal is that there is a pool of knowledge. There is a pool of information that everyone has and upon which can make a decision. Yeah, And that is essentially the media. So if you pollute that pool of knowledge in the way that we're seeing today, surely, I mean, the risk is not only on the integrity of the media or the BBC or this or that, the, the risk is on democracy itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Like, the, you know, people can only make um, decisions, informed decisions, if they are informed, if they are, um, you know, if they actually, if people can only make the decisions based on the information that they have and don't have, right? So if they're not, and a lot of this is to do with the mission, the things that aren't being reported in the media. So if if people don't know about what's happening in Gaza, for example, if people are, are, are not informed of, um, you know, the fact that it, there is now um, 30,000 Palestinians who have been killed and, uh, almost 30,000 and thousands more dead bodies under the rubble, 
if people don't know about that, then, you know, it makes it harder for them to potentially hold their politicians to account, for example, because why why would they? Because they don't know about it. And so people do fall back on social media for that reason, you know. Um, and we, we do hear a lot. Um, there is a lot of talk these days about younger people getting their news from social media. And I don't think that's... Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but it's not necessarily a good thing either because, as I mentioned earlier, social media can tend to be just sort of raw information, which is, isn't necessarily... And that and then that works both ways because it uh, it allows um, governments, corporations, uh, lobbies to just put out their own information, their, their misinformation. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is... The, the, the whole thing is an erosion of democracy like the i mean it's the media in this country especially in a lot of ways um it, it's structurally tends towards supporting the government supporting the state supporting the government of the day and that means that it's so much easier for journalists within these institutions within the bbc to go with the flow because it's it's harder to go out and find um, a story which will then get you into trouble, for example, with your editor or will get you into trouble with government spin doctors or will get you into trouble, in this case, in the case of Gaza, will get you into trouble with the pro-Israel lobby, which um, you know has this, has this fairly effective weapon of weaponized anti-Semitism where they try and... Uh, misportray any criticism of Israel they possibly can as quote-unquote anti-Semitic, where they say, well, you just hate Jews, you don't really care about the Palestinians, you just hate Jews, you're anti-Semitic. And then that is a further erosion of democracy, and it, is, 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 um, it causes bigger problems. And in the long run, and actually, and we were discussing this earlier, um, on the way to the studio, that actually causes anti-Semitism because it means that the real dis discussion about what is really happening of this process of the structural limitations on Western media, the, the structural tendency towards supporting government narratives, um, and the process of how the Israel lobby works, those discussions can't happen openly. Those discussions are marginalized, and those discussions... Um, if if people don't have access to engage in those kind of discussions of what is actually happening, some people will fall back on um, on anti-Semitism, on actual anti-Semitism. So it will it is a process whereby um, you know the the pro-Israel lobby is actually causing anti-Semitism. What's your take on something that is also? I don't know whether it's something that has happened recently, but it's quite marked that many commentators, especially the pro-Palestinian commentators, who come on prominent shows, including, for instance, and I'm, I'm going to give this as an example, the Piers Morgan show, who then become uh, a target for security forces, who become then a target for, you know, to being sacked from their jobs. Yeah. Uh, demonized in the press as a result of them being invited on a show where they oblige, they're asked questions, they respond, regardless of, you know, whether we agree or disagree with them, but they answer 
I presume in as truthfully as they, they could fathom, but then suffer so immensely as to lose their jobs, lose their credibility, their reputation tarred and tarnished, their families being, you know, hounded, their children at school, you know, all these things. This is surely a depiction of something that we've read by Orwell at some stage of, of time. You know, this is a, a, a state which brings about much, much concern. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of McCarthyism in public life, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, you know, Israel is viewed as this litmus test, right? That, um, okay, you can criticize Israel within narrow within a narrow framework, but you can't, um, it has to be done within this, um, what is viewed as an, an acceptable way, right? You can only question the Israeli government or you can question Netanyahu. You can't, uh, you're not allowed to really, um, bring up the basic facts of how Israel was created, i.e. what the we were talking about. Israel. Yeah, the very existence of Israel and the fact that it is predicated on the destruction of um, Palestine and the, the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And that is a process that is continuing now. Like if you try and, if you try and say that I, I, on, on these kind of shows, like I've seen it happen, for example, um, on, uh, on talk TV when, um, pro-Palestinian commentators are brought on those programs and they try and talk about the Nakba and talk about the expulsion of the Palestinians. Uh, I, I saw um, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer, I think her name is, um, say to, to one of these, one of her guests, one of her pro-Palestinian guests, oh, it, it was Mustafa Baghouti, the Palestinian Who is politician. a Palestinian? He's not yeah. only pro-Palestinian, he is a yeah, Palestinian. The Palestinian politician, yeah. you know, he mentioned the Nakba, alluded to the Nakba. And she got very offended and sort of said, well, you're always bringing up, you Palestinians always bringing up history and we can't talk about all the whole history. But those those kinds of, I mean, it, it that is missing the point, isn't it? Because it's not, this isn't like some abstract history that is in a history book that's in the past and we have to move on from. This, the Nakba wasn't just a singular incident in history that began in 1947-48. It was a process that started then and has never stopped. Has never stopped. It's never Until stopped. Until this very day. It, it is the same. I mean, you know, there's a there's a there's a real reason why UNRWA, the um UN agency for Palestinian refugees, recognizes not just the Palestinians who were expelled in uh, you know, 47, 48, 49 as refugees, but their descendants. <clears throat> there's a there's a concrete reason for that, which is that, you know that they their descendants were born in refugee camps they were and they wouldn't have been born in refugee camps if their um if their parents and their grandparents had not been expelled and crucially this is the crucial point it's not just the fact they were expelled they've been prevented from returning ever since in you know in every other war <clears throat> Yes, there is, you know, there is refugees, people, it can happen, there is expulsions, but um, people are allowed to return after after wars, you know, it does happen, um, and it has happened in other cases, and it, people have that, whether they choose to return or not is another question, but the refugees who are expelled in the course of a war, or flee, or who flee in the course of a war, um, have an inherent and irrevocable right to return if they choose to do so. Um, and 
the vast majority of Palestinians would choose to do that, but they are being um, prevented and have always been prevented by Israel from doing that um, with the backing, um, especially since the late 1960s, early 70s, by the United States, with the backing of Europe and, and the backing of Britain and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and they are prevented from returning purely and simply because they're not Jewish. That is the, um, you know, people have termed a, a, a white supremacist ideology of Zionism or uh, a Jewish supremacist ideology. However you think of it, um, it is a, a, a racial ideology whereby, you know, Jews are conceived of as a, as, as a racial people, as a racial group, as a, as a, as a superior kind of Western, right? Even though that is a, a, a historical um, but they are conceived of as um, uh, a Western uh, racial group, and uh, you know, and and indeed, the majority of the early Zionist settlers were from Europe, were were settler colonists from Europe. So you know, there is that is true, um, and because the Palestinians are not Jewish, because they are this you know they are majority of them are muslims but also christians um because they are perceived to be by zionism to be inferior to european jews and to jews from around the world they are prevented from returning because they want to have a so-called jewish state there and so the nakba is not this singular event in history it's a process that really began then and is continuing to this day and we see it graphically we see you know if you don't if you know if these people uh, like julia hartley brewer don't want to talk about history well let's talk about <clears throat> let's talk about the 6th of october 2023 by the 6th of october 2023 there had been almost 250 palestinians killed in the west bank by Israel during the so-called ceasefire. That's that's the idea of the ceasefire. That is the normal, the kind of normal, uh, non, uh, 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 the normal uh, kind of peace or what uh, Israel considers to be quiet or you know rel relative calm, as the BBC would would term it. And that there's this normalization of the killing, murder, torture, um, and abuse sexual assault by Israeli prison staff of Palestinians and that this is an ongoing normal um, state of affairs that is ignored by the Western media. Um, and uh, there's no way that Palestinians, Palestinians have never accepted that and they never will accept that. And so that is why they resist, why they fight back um, and why, you know, and okay, let, let's go back, you know, just a few years prior to that, 2018, there was uh, an event called the Great March of Return, where Palestinian refugees in Gaza were um, they, you know, they carried out a non-violent campaign to try and return to their homes. As I said, eighty percent of them are refugees. Try and return to their homes in historic Palestine, in what the Israelis consider to be Israel, uh, and so they marched peacefully towards that the the barrier fence between Gaza and the nineteen forty eight territories. And they were shot dead. They were murdered by Israeli snipers. You know, that was the response. And there was a then there was no there was very little condemnation of this among Western politicians. Yeah, amongst those killed were nurses and medical staff that were attending to the wounded. Yeah, children, teenagers. Yeah. Um. You know, and 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 this uh and this is 
that that was a kind of that was an unarmed uh i'm i'm it was a form of resistance i'm i'm reluctant to call it peaceful because it was peaceful from the palestinian side but the result was a massacre was a massacre by the israelis so you, you can't say it was peaceful in that sense um so but you know this is what people should bear in mind when they say that the Palestinians should put down their weapons and that they should surrender to Israel and things like that. So, you know, let's, we... let's, let's focus on the positives that have emerged. Um, and amongst the positive that we've just mentioned is that people are switching off from the BBC. Yeah. They are turning away from the so-called mainstream media. And they are heading towards either <clears throat> social media platforms or private podcasts or whatever it is in order to get their feed of, of, of news and information and the such. But with that, there is, and this is something that I've been observing now for since the start of, of, of this war in, in early October, is that countless young people are now turning to research for their own to ask questions that are deemed off the table, um, questions about the very being of Israel, questions about Zionism, yeah. questions about, um, you know, issues of resistance, for instance. I mean, that, that concept, which, which is absolutely, it's, a, it's an absolute no-no in, in any kind of discussion. Um, people are going back and understanding that, hang on, but resistance is mentioned and enshrined in international law. So surely, I mean, the Palestinians have that right as, in as much as, you know, that they are occupied. Um, so people are, in a way, because of the kind of, uh, of, of downward spiral in terms of standards and professionalism of the, of the mainstream media, people are becoming more aware. I mean, not less aware in a way. There is now uh, a segment of society that that understands that things aren't as portrayed on their screens. Yeah, and that yeah, surely yeah. is something which is which is entirely positive. Yeah, there's definitely um, the the contradictions are being heightened by the hypocrisy of the press and by the emissions of the the corporate media because. That met. You're right. It does does uh, heighten this process whereby people seek, especially younger people, but not exclusively, seek for um, seek for alternative sources of information, and that means they end up then supporting um, independent news organizations and 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 smaller uh, websites. Uh, you know, outside the ambit of mainstream news. Uh, in the West and seek for, you know, Palestinian news sources, um, independent news organizations like ours, the Electronic Intifada, you know, we've started this live stream um, on YouTube since um, since the 7th of October, um, you know, it, it's, it's had a, quite a big audience. And so we've been We've kind of been the beneficiary in a way of the <laughs> of the corporate media's uh, lack of willingness to do actual real journalism because then people come and search for real sources of journalism. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it it so there's there is that positive side of it, and it it's um, the the lack of the absence of the truth and the reality of the Palestinian narrative within those corporate media organisations 
is just so stark and it is kind of opening a lot of people's eyes, you know, where they're seeing the hypocrisy and they're seeing the double standards and they're seeing the the real agenda at play in these news organizations. I mean, it's it's only, you know, it's only last year and the year before 2022, 2023, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in 2022 and 2023, the mainstream media, so-called, was full of open praise for armed um, you know, for 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 arming people in Ukraine, for Ukrainians fighting Russian, for for Ukrainians fighting Russian soldiers, fighting the Russian invasion, um, and even to the extent where even there was even praise for Ukrainian fascist groups like the Azov Battalion, um, and that was just openly out there. And there was uh, I forget who it was, but there was one um, journalist who was involved. It was reposted to his Twitter of about how to make a Molotov cocktail, yeah. you know, to fight yeah, yeah. Russians. And so we're seeing, okay, so it's okay to support Ukrainian Nazis because we're so anti-Russian. And yet for Palestinians to defend themselves with with arms is viewed as quote unquote terrorism. So, you know, this is so stark. There's so, um, such an obscene uh, double standard that people are really um, opening their eyes to it, you know, and people are saying, "Well, hang on, this, this, this can't possibly be fair or just." I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's sometimes, uh, you know, quite uplifting. I have to say, when you find young people, and, and I focus on young people because they're the next generation of decision makers. They're the next generation of leaders. They're, you know, they're the future. Um, governors of, of our affairs. So for them at the age of, let's say, 16, 18, 20, 22, to start asking those questions and to demand answers is something which is promising. It, it means that we're not amid um, an increasing expansion of Zionist uh, propaganda that is going to cover our airwaves. In fact, there is going to be a challenge to that and there's going to be a demand for you know for 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 answers from from those who are going to be the 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 leaders of of, of the next phase so so for me at least i i think that what's happening is is uh, extremely uplifting but at the same time we have to you know mention the fact that the uh, the israeli lobby i mean and and now more and more people are coming to be aware of this Israeli lobby here in the UK as well as in the United States. And it wasn't just because of the brilliant series that Al Jazeera produced on the lobby here in the, in the, in the UK as well as in America, but because of the war in Gaza. People all of a sudden started understanding the politicians aren't really saying it like it is. The media isn't really asking the real questions that need to be asked because there must be some sort of pressure and all of a sudden they're, they're going back to this lobby that is there. But this lobby is, I mean, one of the, the, the means that it uses is intimidation. Yeah. And pro-Palestinian activists, pro-Palestinian commentators are being attacked, are being marginalized, are being tarred, are sometimes often being intimidated. We've seen that. And this seems to be part of the overall picture to fight this war away from the epicenter of, of the war, which is in Gaza, but also to expand this war to, you know, to over here in London and in Washington and yeah. elsewhere.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Israeli planners, Israeli think tanks, Israeli um, ministries, uh, and what they've been saying and planning and uh, talking about within their media for years is, um, yeah, they view it as a global battleground, as an ideological battleground. They call the Palestine Solidarity Movement, um, their term for it is um, the delegitimization network. Where there's There was one um, very famous series of policy papers and presentations by a think tank, an Israeli think tank close to the Israeli government, a successive Israeli government, called the Rayut Institute. Um, and they, in one of their PowerPoint presentations, they talked quite openly and they made a comparison between Israel and apartheid South Africa quite openly and saying, Apartheid South Africa, yes, there was, um, you know, the ANC fought against it, the ANC campaigned against it internally, and they even um, took up arms against it. But um, the uh, Apartheid South Africa was never defeated on the battleground militarily in a um, in a conventional sense of, a, of uh, uh, you know, armies against armies. It was never defeated that way but it was defeated through a collapse of its legitim legitimacy. And so we have to try and make, making a comparison between Israel and apartheid South Africa. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Internally, they're doing that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> publicly, if you if you said, if you made that comparison, they would call that anti-Semitic, of course. But the point was that, and it was it's true that, that they, um, they were saying, you know, that kind of legitimacy can be lost very quickly and so therefore we have to have this global battleground and um they do talk about it quite openly in those ways they talk about um peaceful uh campaigning you know political uh lobbying if you will um for the palestinian cause even you know um lawyers and uh legal campaigns for the palestinians um and just um, protesting on the street they talk about that as a battleground they talk about it as um, and there was one um, uh, article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz um, quite a few years ago now where they it was um, reporting from within the Israeli embassy in London. And according to this Israeli reporter, they had up um, a map, a, a sort of a battleground map of of the battlefield. And the battlefield to them was universities uh, in the UK. That was one part of it was universities was that is the battlefield and so yeah uh, they'll they will do they will employ and they have been employing all kinds of any and all kinds of dirty tricks they can possibly mobilize against palestinians and their supporters in the west and a large part of it i mean as you alluded to without explicitly saying earlier a large part of it is, is islamophobia that um muslims uh especially prominent Muslims in public life, maybe people who uh, uh, who are commentators, um, activists, um, you know, um, journalists, um, solicitors, you know, campaigners like yourself, people who would maybe seek to go on to these news platforms like Piers Morgan, like Talk TV, not because they agree with those um, journalists and their political persuasions, but because they want to seek their audience, they want to seek the, the larger audiences they might have access to, then get kind of trapped and um, get uh, ambushed on these programs. And quite often it's turning, uh, you know, it can be done in, in a fairly um, Islamophobic way where um, as a as a as a Muslim, you are then 
or as somebody who has spoken in favor of the Palestinians, is then demanded of you to condemn Palestinian resistance factions as if, you know, you're responsible for armed struggle by Palestinians um, as a Muslim. So like that is, um, there's a large element of Islamophobia to it as well. And uh, that is something that Israel definitely takes advantage of and tries to really encourage in the West really is um, because it, it suits them and it suits their narrative. 2024 is going to be an exciting year. We have elections over here in the UK. We have the American presidential elections. How big do you anticipate Gaza particularly um, to figure in the way that people vote? I mean, obviously, people have their own worries. They have their own concerns. We've been having a, a, a living a cost of living crisis here in the UK. In America, the plethora of crises that uh, confronts you know most Americans every single day is is gigantic, and um, and surely that there are those local issues, but then again. Uh, I find more and more, let's say in America specifically, talking about how many billions of dollars are sent to Israel, whilst, for instance, there are so many homeless people in America every single day. Um, how, for instance, I mean, someone who did not comment at all on the situation in Gaza, but said, you know, Israel is far richer than we are. Israel has no public debt that is uh, akin to anything that we have. Israel has free health care when we don't. And yet we continue to send billions of dollars um, in cash as well as in aid every single year to Israel. And that doesn't make sense. So in a way, whilst that might not pertain to what's happening in Gaza directly, but it but it's an offshoot of this. Yeah, so absolutely. So what kind of impact do you foresee happening in our elections and in the American elections well, this year? I think it will definitely have a big impact on both. Um, you know, it may not be the decisive factor, but I think both Democratic Party and Labour Party strategists would be foolish to ignore it and they they can't ignore it because it's becoming a growing problem for both what we're facing on both sides of the atlantic is 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 an interesting point of view is 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 an interesting situation because in both countries the US and Britain there is a sense in which both you know both parties the democrats both allegedly sort of center center leftish parties the democrats and the labor party they're both in a political position now where there are they're both of them are the difference between them and their conservative uh, opposition party of government in this country obviously um is on policies is actually very little the difference between the two is very little especially um you know it, the policies are, of uh, Joe Biden uh, are not very substantially different from Donald Trump in a lot of areas, in most areas. And the Labour Party's policies since Keir Starmer came in as Labour Party leader um, are, you know, almost identical, really, to the, the ruling And, and he said he's not going to change much. I mean, yeah, you know, Joe, famously, Joe Biden um, said that, nothing, you know, in his election campaign to become uh, president, he said, 
um, nothing will fundamentally change. And the Labour Party, ever since Keir Starmer came in, has been rolling back all of the Corbyn era policies one by one. Um, and, you know, he's a very sort of shifty individual who has really betrayed the the party membership that have voted for him because he's gone back on all his pledges. Notably, the only pledge that he's kept is that he was uh, a supporter of Zionism without qualification. And he's definitely, in, that's the words he used, and he's definitely done that. He's gone out of his way to support Israel. But I think that it's um, the issue of the genocide in Gaza that the Israelis are carrying out is uh, a problem for whether they like it or not, and clearly they don't like it. It's a problem for the Democrats and it's a problem for Labour because their voter base, the people who they rely on to mobilise for them in elections and who they rely on to vote for them, um, it's going to be harder and harder for them to come out en masse to vote for those two parties when they are so adamantly against uh, the uh, the genocide that's happening in Gaza and Joe Biden especially, uh, but also Keir Starmer, are very you know incredibly outspoken in favour of what is happening. You know, Keir Starmer even said that you know on uh, national radio, infamously a few months ago, that the Lab that Israel does have that right to starve essentially to starve Palestinians to to cut off food and water to Palestinians because it because of some imagine right to self-defense. This, this is obscene. You know, the latest obscenity from the Labour Party, and I was just reading today, was that David Lammy said that, well, we're not going to vote for the SNP's resolution for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza um, because this is an election year and we wouldn't want to jeopardize the uh, our election. I mean, what, what he, our election prospects, what he's saying makes no sense because... You know, it, it would be a popular election, electoral policy. I mean, what he's really talking about, it wouldn't jeopardize his electoral chances. What it could jeopardize is his funding, because his funding, the funding from uh, the electoral funding for the Labour Party's electoral campaign uh, is coming from, in large part, from pro-Israel lobbyists, people like Trevor Chin, people like Gary Lubner, um, who um, who are backing the Labour Party now with millions and millions of pounds uh, potentially in um, supporting for their electoral campaigns. But, you know, the, this money is not, you know, it, it's not a fixed thing that they definitely need because during the Corbyn years, they didn't have this kind of corporate money, you know. And yet when Jeremy Corbyn left the Labour Party, when he um, when he quit as Labour Party leader, the the Labour Party was in the best financial shape that it had been for a long time. And why was that? Despite the corporate money, they had the backing of the membership. They had the backing of um, they had the backing of the people. Essentially, that's where the money was coming from. That's no longer there. And so, you know, the, this um, I suppose the silver lining is that the Labour Party and the Democrats are being um, constantly challenged on this. And I think where we we're seeing some some independent candidates being put up to oppose the Labour Party narrowly on the issue of Gaza locally in certain areas. People like uh, Leanne Mohammed opposing uh, Wes Streeting, George Galloway opposing the Labour candidate in, in Rochdale in the by-election. We could see it could potentially see some upsets. Um, I mean, very, very briefly, but this is something that we really need to talk about, and that is the ICJ. You see, what I don't understand is this. Now, 
okay, fine. We, you know, people take and assume whatever ideological or whatever position that might be driven either by financial interest, funding, political, whatever. Um, but what I don't understand is this. Do not people understand the veracity of the ICJ's ruling? The fact that it is plausible that Israel has committed, the fact that they have accepted the, 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 the case filed by South Africa against Israel in the case of genocide, do people not, I mean, of the intelligence you'd assume of Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak or Joe Biden, do they not understand that if this ruling came to be affirmed in the final verdict, that they would be seen or they could plausibly be seen as aiders and abettors of a war crime. Yeah. And that they would go down in the echelons of in the books of history as supporters of a war crime. Yeah. I mean, surely, I mean, what's what's happening? Are people not paying attention or what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think they are smart enough to understand that logically, but I think they are just essentially relying on being backed and supported by by power, essentially. I mean, look at I mean, look at Tony Blair. I mean, we all know that uh, he, Tony Blair is popularly understood by so many people to be a war criminal. You know, that he um, was a key factor in the uh, devastating invasion of Iraq, which you know killed um, more than a million people and led to so much dev devastation. You know, for a whole generation in Iraq and really um, destroyed it in a for you know in a in a lot of ways destroyed the country thankfully it's getting back on its feet more now but it's still living with the legacy of that invasion and people understand um that tony blair was really a key factor in that and is understood by so many people to be a war criminal um and yet he's protected he's never faced any consequences for that you know and he has you know this very cushy career doing all kinds of nefarious things uh you know lucrative speaking engagements and so forth and so although they're kind of undermining their own um popularity within their party membership um they're relying on the backing of the british government which you know without a fundamental change in this country um they will, pro they will probably get unfortunately um, but i think that the icj ruling that um, israel is plausibly carrying out a genocide in the gaza strip um is something that can uh it, it's an important it's it, it's definitely an important precedent and it's definitely an important ruling and uh we can see that um people like Keir Starmer, David Lammy and Lisa Nandy are absolutely on the wrong side of history and I think they they're going to have to face that blow to their reputations. Mm -hmm.